Please be seated. We are in a study of Peter's second letter. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we go to the end of 2 Peter chapter 1. And we will go into the first two verses of chapter 2. Reminding you, of course, that the chapters and verses were added about a thousand years ago. That uh, no such division, of course, was in the original. And you'll see that there is an important connection between the truth of God's word and the falsehood of those who are teaching lies and leading people into destruction, false prophets and false teachers. Um, picking up now in verse 16, hear the word of the Lord from Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Amen. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth, even as those who have taken their stand uh, upon the Lord, uh, who have begun to follow him, have heard his voice. And so it is that uh, we pray that that same voice would lead us on, that especially as we consider now the warnings of this passage, that you would make us wise, that you would Give us strength that even as there is a drift in the world around us to neglect so great a salvation and to doubt your holy word, we pray that we, your kingdom of priests, might continue eagerly and strongly to be able to hold it, to proclaim it, to hold forth the word of life in a dark and dying age. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Does anyone know off the top of your head the very first words recorded in the Bible of the enemy of your souls? The first diabolical words found in the Bible? Yes, indeed. Yea, hath God said, or has God indeed said? There has, from the very beginning, been a terrific contest, a struggle to corrupt that which is incorruptible, to destroy that which gives life, to bring to an end the word that abides forever, to call into question the word of the Lord. 
Now, God's word, as we've seen from the the end of this uh, first chapter, is living and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. It makes the strongest claims about its own divine authority and origin, saying that it is God-breathed, breathed out by God, by the Holy Spirit carrying men along. The scripture says the Lord Jesus cannot be broken. Well, heaven and earth may pass away, but his word will never pass away. And if we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are reminded by Peter that we are never safer in this world than when we are getting stronger in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter has been uh, exhorting us to grow in Christ's grace and knowledge. And as we read earlier, he is about to die. He recognizes that this is the end, and he is going to bequeath dying words to this church to sober them, uh, to make them strong and steadfast. He presses upon them a sober warning as beloved brothers and sisters who are going to be in danger of false teachers. Coming in secretly, he says, to deceive the church, causing God's people to doubt the word, even deny the Lord himself. Many will follow them to their destruction. And as we're going to focus today on the first couple of verses of chapter 2, he warns them of this downward spiral. And so this will be the subject of our study today, which we'll have under three headings, doubting the word, denying the Lord, and destroying the souls of many. Doubting the word, denying the Lord, destroying the souls of many. So not as positive a sermon as we've been enjoying from Peter's very positive beginning to this letter. But now in chapter 2, he turns the corner and he warns them. And I will warn you today in his words. Well, we take up first doubting the word, doubting the word. In the passage before us, Peter has contrasted the truth of God's word with the lies of the false teachers. And already uh, in, uh, implicitly, he has rejected two ways, two very contemporary ways as well, that false teachers then, as now, cause people to doubt. First, uh, in verse 16, where we began, he rejects the claim that he and his fellow apostles were making up stories and not teaching facts. Verse 16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. That Greek word comes right into English as myths. We didn't follow cunningly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, rejecting the suggestion intended to make you doubt that this is all a bunch of myths. And this is very contemporary, as I say. Many people today, if they think about the Bible at all, they think that it's just a collection of myths. I think that more than anything else, it's probably due to the influence of one theologian that I hope you don't know. He died in 1976. His name was Rudolf Bultmann. For a time, the biggest name in biblical studies, his impact is still felt even here at Virginia Tech. He said that the Bible had to be, in his words, demythologized. Interestingly, using the very word that Peter denies 
in the passage. He wanted to take away the myths and get down to the kernel in the husk. By doing so, Boltman hoped to make the Bible acceptable to modern people, taking away the supernatural stories of of virgin birth and miracles and resurrection and teaching the real Jesus. So, for instance, uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000, we're taught, this was not a miracle to show that Christ was the bread of life. No, no, no. What really happened was that uh, everybody had food you know, concealed in their garments and so forth. But nobody wanted to share with anyone else. But when Jesus brought forth that little lad with five loaves and a few fish, and he shared what he had, then everyone shared what they had. And they had a great meal for 5,000. My dad told me that. You might say, where did he get this from? What's the, what's the evidence of such a reading? Well, none, of course. But by taking away the myth, by making it a just-so story with a moral, it makes the Bible acceptable to modern people. And you say, well, what would the point be, for instance, if Jesus was walking on a sandbar instead of walking on water? Well, I'm sure that scholars could come up with a good one for that, too. Because it's all speculation, such scholars can agree on very little, and they have no testable conclusions, only to say that they can see right through the myths, and they can give you the real story. They assure us that the Bible is, in fact, patched together from sources that no longer exist by writers whom they can't identify to tell a story that never really happened. As C.S. Lewis commented, these men ask me to believe that they can read between the lines of old texts. But the evidence is their inability to read the lines themselves. The point that I'm making is that this myth argument, it's very contemporary. The downward spiral began and begins today with doubting the word. And not just downing it. There's uh, denying what Peter emphatically says. We did not follow cunningly desired fables, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But this anti-supernatural approach to the Bible has now filtered down through churches and schools and universities and has destroyed the faith of many. I was at the inaugural lecture of the new Department of uh, Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech a couple years ago when they had the celebration and they invited Bart Ehrman to come and to give a talk. The name of that talk was, Are the New Testament Documents Forged? That is to say, fakes, written by people who knows when, who knows where, saying who knows what. Of course, he could offer no evidence that that was the case. Except at one point, he did offer one piece of evidence, which I thought was very interesting. He said that uh, Peter, whom we're studying, Peter was an illiterate man. All right, it says unlettered, agramatus, usually translated unlearned or unschooled, but 
okay, it could be illiterate. Peter was an illiterate man. And he says he absolutely could never have written such a biblically informed, rhetorically powerful uh, letter, two letters, as these, he argued. Well, at least he gave some reason, right? And, uh, and I was smiling. And, uh, and somebody a- actually asked him, he said, uh, Dr. Ehrman, do you mean that uh, it would be impossible for him to dictate a, a letter? I mean, as, as it says at the end of his first letter, he, he's written it by the help of somebody else. Uh, that was the standard practice at the time for older people, of course. You can't see the page. Okay. And he said, no, I, I know of no case in the ancient world in which an illiterate man wrote a composition, anything like this. In, unless you know of one, sir, he said to me. I was sitting in the second row, and I was smiling. And in the middle of his lecture... Bart Ehrman handed me the floor. I couldn't believe it. It was of the Lord, right? I said I was, I was only smiling because you're saying the same thing as Israel's Sanhedrin said when Peter stood before him, that when Peter answered them, they marveled at what he said, being such an unlearned man. But they recognized that he had been with Jesus. He didn't know. Bart, Bart didn't know. I, I, I went like that for him to finish, but he didn't know. And so I said, uh, Jesus, three years of teaching and preaching with the Savior every day. Do you think that he learned something about the scriptures and how to preach the word? And, you know, if you, I said, if you, <laughs> I, I turned the corner a little bit, and I said, <laughs> you know, if you'd, if, if, if you'd gotten up here and said it's all true, uh, you might lose your position, but the fact that you get up here and say it's all false, they, they, they give you a, a nice lectureship. And, uh, and he took the floor back at that point, right? <laughs> he probably never made that mistake again. But the Lord had it right there to be able to point out the emptiness of the claim. Has God indeed said? That is the authentic voice of the devil. And Peter says, you must understand that he and his fellow apostles were eyewitnesses, not creative writers, and in fact only confirming what the scriptures themselves said would come. But there will be false prophets and false teachers in the days. Peter rejected this suggestion that anything was some clever myth He also, you notice, rejected the suggestion that any prophecy of Scripture was just somebody's interpretation of the divine will. No, he says, verse 21, prophecy never came about by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried by the Holy Spirit. Okay, we considered that at length last time. I only point out now the contrast in the next verse, remembering, uh, again, there is no division in the original, but, Peter says, by way of contrast, There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. He warned in this chapter that they will both twist the scriptures and openly cause people to doubt them, questioning their truthfulness. Chapter 3, verse 4, they'll say, where is the promise of his coming, you know? You notice that they will not, though, be honest about what they believe. 
They don't come saying that we are false teachers wearing the false teacher t-shirt, twisting up their mustaches into little sharp points. That's not how they come. Peter says, you see, back in the passage, chapter 2, they come in secretly, introducing destructive heresies. They exploit you with deceptive words. Verse 3, they pretend to be godly men, godly men, inwardly wolves coming in sheep's clothing. They've come to lead people to their destruction, but they won't recognize it until it's too late. That's the way it was then. That's the way it is and has always been. Um, in 1718, Ebenezer Gray took the pastorate of one of the most eminent Puritan churches in New England, the old ship congregational church outside of Boston. Gray was an extremely dedicated man. He pastored the same church for 69 years. I don't know if that's a record or what. From 1718 to 1787, the, the church began as a stalwart of the old Puritan faith. And by the time that the Reverend Mr. Gray retired in 1787, it was no longer a congregational church. It had become a Unitarian church. Gray had learned the new divinity at Harvard as a student. And he didn't come in to the church saying that Jesus was not the divine Son of God. No, no. He didn't come in saying that. He didn't say that he no longer believed in divine judgment or anything like that. He came in preaching grace and ascending to the church's orthodox confession of faith. But by the time that man retired, he had not only led his congregation, but he had influenced several other congregations to come to a Unitarian and Universalist faith. He was persuasive, active, intelligent, devout, very committed. And people followed him to their doom. Satan, the Bible says, transforms himself into an angel of light. It is therefore no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. The university professors today will not come at the Bible head-on, they will use the language of praise. Although mythical, they say, the Bible is nevertheless a majestic document that deserves an important place in scholarship and society. And they'll sound like they love the Bible even while they're secretly shredding it to ribbons behind their backs. This is one of the reasons that Peter uses in the second chapter, we'll see extreme language about these teachers to, to wake people up, to alarm the sleeping. No doubt that few in the church even recognized them for what they were. They had come in secretly, he says, deceiving, not denying, but distorting the scriptures to the destruction of themselves and their followers. For brothers and sisters, I tell you, the price of faithfulness is vigilance. The price of faithfulness is vigilance. You must keep awake. Peter wants us to know, first of all, he says, that the Bible is what it claims to be, the word of the Lord. And you should not doubt. 
Now, the downward spiral begins with doubt, point one. But that's not where it ends. It progresses, point two, even to denying the Lord himself. Chapter 2, verse 1 again, picking up, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Bought, by the way, in the same sense as those whom God had redeemed out of Egypt, though with most of them God was not pleased and their bodies fell in the wilderness. So in the biblical language, to buy and to redeem uh, has uh, this uh, general meaning of the people of God and just, uh, in this case here, and just like the false prophets were among the purchased people of old, so the false teachers today are going to be among them and in the church. And although they start by doubting the word, they go on to denying the Lord. A few weeks ago I pointed out that the vast majority of people who become Christians don't start with a thorough investigation of the trustworthiness of the Bible, and then come to believe in Jesus Christ. Glad that some people, like uh, Warner Wallace, have gone that way and, and others, so they could lead us in that path. But most people don't begin with an investigation of the Bible, and then, coming to rest in its truthfulness, come to believe in Jesus. Usually what happens is, as Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And then through the reading or preaching of the Bible, people who have come to know the Lord himself after learning of Christ in the Scriptures and after hearing what Jesus himself taught about the Scriptures, they transfer their confidence in Christ to God's Word. Perfectly normal. That's how it usually happens. A reasonable way to go. People trust the Lord and therefore his Word. But Peter warns in this passage that also works in reverse. People who then begin doubting the word end up denying the Lord. And, and this is something where, you know, the, in the last generation or two, as people have, have said, oh, we don't have to believe in the Bible to know Jesus. Well, obviously, friends, the only Jesus that we know is that which is revealed in the Bible. And once you are cut loose from that, you're going to end up with a very different Jesus. People who begin doubting the word will end up denying the Lord. The scriptures, Paul wrote, are able to make us wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. But that works the other way as well. Doubting the word to denying the Lord. And this also, I say, is a very contemporary thing. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The church itself does not seem to know. According to the very large State of Theology survey by Ligonier and Lifeway, quite a large survey of the beliefs and uh, opinions, anyway, of Christians in the U.S., 78% of evangelicals affirm that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, people. That's the Arian doctrine in so many ways. Uh, 78% of evangelicals believe that. A couple were unsure. Less than 20% of people on the survey, apparently, 
believe that Jesus was and is Emmanuel, God with us. It, it blows my mind. I, I have a hard time. I wonder, there's got to be something wrong with that methodology. Surely that can't be the truth. But they repeat the surveys every year, and things get worse and worse. You know, it was really obvious to those who heard Jesus what he was claiming. When Jesus says, hey, before Abraham was, I am. When Jesus says, I and my Father are one, in those, both of those cases, the people took up stones to stone him. You, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus was actually convicted of blasphemy by the Jewish Sanhedrin and handed over to the Romans to be crucified because the Jews knew perfectly well what he was saying. The great majority of people today in the church do not know that Jesus is the one who, in the words of the old creed, is very God of very God. And don't forget that it was religious people who rejected and then murdered the Savior of the world, thinking they were doing God a favor by doing so. How is it possible? They had already been led astray by false teachers, and they ended up denying the Lord in the worst way sending him to his death. Now, it's no surprising that in these uh, busy days, many Christians don't think very deeply about their faith. They don't know their Bibles very well. I, I tell myself probably people were better than their theology on a survey, I hope. Indeed, virtually every survey has demonstrated that Christians simply just don't know what they believe. They don't know their Bibles as well as unbelievers knew their Bible a couple generations ago, at least when they read it in school. And this is a tragic loss. But the problem is not just ignorance. The problem is the surveys are reminding us that more and more doubting the Word has led to denying the Lord. And people aren't saying that. What they say is, you have Jesus, I have mine. We, there's just lots of different Jesuses out there. Well, they don't, of course, they don't really say it like that, but you know, there's the Jesus of movie and film, there's the Jesus of the humanists and the Mormons and so forth, not to be unkind, but simply to say that everyone seems to have his own Jesus these days. And you, you want to ask, will the real Jesus please stand up? Liberal scholars, for their part, have told, told us that by getting rid of the myths, 